right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management. We talk about rehab after surgery. We talk about improved mobility. And we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. Welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. Absolute honor to be able that to, to share with you a great panel. We're going to be talking about, as I look at my stat card so I don't get this wrong, common injuries in soccer. But before we get into that particular conversation with these uh, uh, titans of information. How about that? That's just sort of over the top, isn't it? Titans of information in soccer. Uh, I want you to make a note of going out to coraphysicaltherapy.com. Coraphysicaltherapy.com. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, go out to that website. I guarantee you will not be disappointed. Gents, welcome to In Your Corner. How are you guys doing? Doing pretty good. good. Thanks for having us. All right, here we go. We got to go around the room here. We're going to start with Dr. Troyer. Give us a little background, a little 411 on who you are. Yeah, Scott, appreciate the invite. Um, so I'm a, a double board certified physician in physical medicine rehab and also sports medicine, a certification in kind of MSK ultrasound as well. Um, been involved in soccer um, ever since I can remember. Grew up playing it, grew around brothers that played at the semi-professional and professional level. They left me in the training room because I couldn't cut it on the field. Um, and that's kind of where I'm best suited now. Um, been doing soccer um, at, at multiple levels at this point. When I was up at University of Kentucky for residency, kind of got experience at the D1 level um, up there. Um, went down to Emory in Atlanta um, and served as a team physician for Emory men's and women's soccer, as well as Decatur High School, uh, Decatur High School and now down in Jacksonville, Florida um, at Mayo Clinic, Florida. If you're watching him out on the old video, uh, he is probably Doogie Hauser because I'm telling you, life has been good to you, Dr. Troyer, because you must have got started at maybe age five or something like that. And I've been rode hard and put away wet. All right, Brian, that's a hard yeah. act to follow. Give us a little 411 on your background. Yeah, my name is Brian Robertson, and I'm a physical therapist in Neptune Beach, Florida, which uh, if you're not familiar with the area, um, we're one of the smaller beach communities in the Jacksonville region. Um, I've been an avid soccer player since I was about five years old and, uh, competed in competitive soccer programs throughout my childhood and into high school. Uh, I then continued with intramural athletics in college and eventually into adult soccer leagues in the North Florida region. Um, as a PT, I've been actively working with our local soccer club, uh, JFC for almost six years now. Um, I have a passion for working with soccer related injuries as I, uh, unfortunately sustained quite a few over my childhood that, uh, led me into my physical therapy uh, career. Did, did you say KFC? Uh, JFC. <laughs> oh, I was getting ready. I was going to say, oh, my gosh, you guys better think about changing that one. Good. I'll, I'll knock it off of my list of, you know, get rid of that name, just that type of thing. All right, Dr. Rick, looks like they're ready to go. They're ready to sort of uh, take some questions from you. So I'm Dr. Rick Lehman in the 314 St. Louis area. I'm a sports orthopedic surgeon and uh, – I've been the team physician for three NHL teams and I've covered the last five Olympics. And I'd actually be in Tokyo uh, this week. I may be going next week based on credentialing and uh, the pandemic, which seems to be getting worse, as we all know. But first of all, I want to thank everybody for showing up. This is beautiful. Um, 
we, we, we've got some challenges right here in St. Louis and uh, with, with the pandemic. So we're, we're glad to be able to do this. And we're going to talk about soccer injuries and soccer, obviously extremely common sport uh, in the United States, very common in St. Louis. St. Louis University has a storied history of being uh, a very good soccer program. And uh, we're going to start with maybe one of the easiest things, and that are the most common injuries. And we're going to go through these injuries fairly uh, quickly, I think, and, and talk about the injuries that we see as sports orthopedists, as physical therapists, et cetera, most commonly. So let's start out with ankle sprains, very, very common, common in basketball, common in soccer. And Dr. Troyer, why don't you kind of start the show a little bit and let's talk about mechanism of injury and the prevalence, et cetera. And tell us about ankle sprains, soft tissue ankle injuries. Yeah, absolutely. So ankle sprains, it's one of the most common things that end up in our clinics from soccer teams, um, basketball teams. Um, and, and when we look at these, um, you can kind of classify them in multiple different ways, but the way I kind of look at them is you either have inversion sprains, eversion sprains, or kind of high ankle sprains. Um, inversion is the outside the ankle. It's the most common mechanism that you have with these. Um, it's typically if someone's stepping on someone's foot, if you're running, cutting, um, on uneven ground, the foot rolls out and you can tear some of the ligaments on the outside of the, the ankle. Um, less commonly, it's eversion sprains, moving the ankle towards the inside. Um, and it's a big, more broad ligament that kind of covers that area. Um, but this kind of tells us more that it can lead to an increased time off of play, um, take a little bit more recovery, and then high ankle sprains involving kind of that syndesmosis between the, the two bones as well. Um, and once again, leading to a higher recovery time in these, um, most of these are managed conservatively, very rarely do they need surgery. Um, and when we look at these in youth athletes, youth athletes, the difference between youth athletes and adults is the fact that their growth plates are open. So it's commonly a weak area. Um, and you can even have kind of fractures or injuries to the growth plates in these regions. Um, looking at ankle sprains, we, we've kind of developed this Ottawa criteria, which is an emergency medicine criteria for reasons why people should have x-rays of the ankle. So um, if your child or, or you as an athlete sustain an ankle sprain, there's a couple of rules that we kind of follow up is who needs x-rays initially and who, who may be able to manage without them. And it's kind of bony tenderness on the outside of the ankle, kind of on that posterior side. Um, as well as the inside of the bone. Um, and then anyone's not able to bear weight either on the field or um, up to 30 minutes afterwards. Those may be people that were more concerned that they have a growth plate injury um, or even a fracture in this area um, and kind of need a little bit more um, attention paid to them. Um, and I'll kind of leave it to Brian. Um, when looking at taping and things like that, there's not really any evidence that taping may prevent these injuries, but it can be helpful in getting people back on the field faster. Um, but what does work is keeping people on the field is physical therapy, kind of working on strengthening the ankles. So tell, tell let, let's, let's dial back just a minute. Tell us about evaluation of deltoid ligament injuries and evaluation of high ankle sprains, uh, syndosmosis injuries. Patient comes in, he tells you he's had an eversion injury. How do you evaluate? Tell us about your physical exam. How do you evaluate that athlete? Yeah, so, so it can be tough because these eversion injuries and also these syndesmotic injuries kind of going up the um, going up the syndesmosis of the leg, it's kind of 
in the anterior part of the ankle, kind of following up the ankle and kind of more up into the shin. Um, but these are very, very painful injuries. It can be, it can be tough trying to get a good evaluation on some of these patients just from the, the amount of pain that they're in in this area. Um, but what we're looking at is evaluating those ligaments, looking for laxity of those areas, um, testing what we call a drawer test or a tailor tilt test in these areas to see if, if there's gapping of the ankle, which can be tough initially, but when it's a more chronic injury, it's a little bit easier. And also um, walking the finger up the middle of the bone um, to see if there's still tender in that area that may key us off to more of a high ankle sprain injury and maybe a more prolonged recovery um, than one of these easier ankle sprains like an inversion sprain injury. And, and do you find any use for MRIs? Do you ever MRI any of these kids? Do you worry about osteochondral defects? Kind of how, what, what's your next step after your physical exam? Yeah. So, um, depends on the level of, um, it depends on the level of injury, what the, the exam feels like, the amount of laxity that you're feeling. Um, and it, and it certainly depends on the level of athlete. Of course, our higher level athletes may be someone that gets a, an MRI sooner. And it's not because it's maybe changing management, but it's, it's really because it's going to be able to prognosticate the time that they're out for injury, maybe provide more time to their coach, um, and, and give us a little bit more information early on in our youth athletes. And we're, we follow these and we send them to PT and kind of build up the muscles around that leg, those dynamic stabilizers. Um, that's always something in the back of our mind. Is there something like an osteochondral defect or a cartilage injury underlying this? Is there a fracture of like the anterior process of the calcaneus, um, which is, can be difficult to see on x-rays alone. Um, but things that aren't healing appropriately or along the timeline that we think these may be things that we look at a little bit with a little bit more detail, like an MRI. That was awesome. So Brian, let's, let's move on from there just a little bit. And let's talk about, as Dr. Troyer said, kind of the hallmark of, of treatment of these injuries uh, is generally physical therapy, maybe a biologic physical therapy uh, combination. So how do we go about rehabbing, and let's talk about acute injuries, and then we can kind of spin down and talk about chronic injuries. But tell us about your rehab protocol. Yeah, so uh, one of the major complications we typically run in with therapy with acute ankle sprains is a reduction in what we call proprioception. Uh, basically, proprioception is the feedback from the joints of the body to the brain to inform the body where that joint is during a specific movement. The reduced feedback from the joint can eventually lead to chronic ankle sprains and instability if it's not properly addressed. So I've got a high school athlete right now who's a kind of perfect example of how a minor ankle sprain can kind of turn into a chronic injury um, if it's not rehab properly. Uh, he was referred to us with an inversion ankle sprain, progressing well with his therapy, and uh, he decided he uh, felt so good he'd go out and do some drills over the weekend on his own without any kind of communication with us or his physician or his coach. And he ended up suffering another additional inversion in his brain. Um, he came back to us the next week, significant swelling and bruising. Um, and thanks to TikTok, he'd actually kind of been filming himself performing the drills and had video footage of the injury, um, which is sometimes rare in youth athletics. And you can actually see uh, exactly where he loses control of his ankle during the planter, um, the planting movement that caused the inversion ankle sprain. Um, now, obviously, we had some communication issues there with the patient, but it provides a great example of how repetitive these injuries can come if uh, they're not properly progressed. Um, a typical kind of graded progression in therapy um, back to sport following an ankle sprain typically begins with 
uh, an emphasis on edema and pain management, as well as returning uh, normal range of motion to the ankle. Um, we will then progress from open chain exercises to weight bearing or closed chain activities, uh, eventually into balance, coordination, and agility exercises, uh, such as ones that focus on single leg landing techniques, uh, the use of agility ladders, speed hurdles, cutting drills, and eventually a return to sprinting movement. That's great. Um, do you do any dorsal V in, in your analysis um, of, of kind of you rehab the ankle, you're ready for your college athlete to go back. Um, what's your determining factor to, to tell Dr. Troyer, hey, we think that uh, Jimmy here is ready to rock? Yeah, uh, you know, if we've gone into some of the plyometric activities and the sprinting movements um, and the patient's got, like you said, we're kind of regained that dorsi flexion range of motion is the typical one that a lot of soccer players lack um, after an ankle sprain. So once we get back to full range, they're tolerating, you know, progression of all the interventions we're using in the clinic. Um, I'll even get them out back of our clinic and do some sprinting and cutting movements. Uh, and usually that progresses to light return to uh, some practice activities. And if they can tolerate that well, um, usually a full return to sport is uh, cleared by the physician. That's awesome. And, and, and let's talk about chronic ankle sprains. Somebody comes in, they've had four or five ankle sprains. Uh, Dr. Troy tells you they've got a positive anterior drawer, positive tailored tilt has some laxity, seem to tell you every time they're coming down the floor, they feel their ankle give, they just don't feel stable. How do we address that, that particular athlete, male or female? Yeah, I mean, with chronic ankle sprains, a lot of the times, like kind of going back to the proprioception aspect, something's not being addressed in their therapy or they're not properly rehabbing um, through their first couple times through before they've had those injuries. Um, we're missing some kind of component that's leading back to these. Um, whether it be we need to work more on uh, working with BOSU balls or foam, you know, uh, activities and uh, building up that ankle proprioception where um, is giving that feedback to the brain of where that joint is in space, um, kind of as I was referencing earlier. And Dr. Troyer, real quick, is there, is there any place for prophylactic bracing? Sometimes we'll see athletes, especially lead tennis players and they'll prophylactically brace or had an ankle sprain they're just going to decide hey i'm going to try to avoid a problem in the future or maybe they have an aso or one of the uh, more popular ankle braces uh prophylactically do you think there's any place for that um not so much I, at least when i when i when i address with athletes i'm coming from the perspective of a rehab doctor so um when when you're not when you haven't had an injury before there's no um laxity of that joint, um, trying to make those dynamic stabilizers as strong as they can to do the job instead of a brace. Um, so if someone comes to me prophylactically, most soccer players, I'm kind of against it. Uh, if you're looking at volleyball players that we know that their ankle prevalence is so high and, and they're constantly jumping and possibly landing down on someone's foot, which is a, com uh, a common mechanism on them. I sometimes say, okay, for them, um, but I think it's a better brace to get someone back on the field because we know that after these injuries, um, for about six months, their proprioception is off, no matter if they do the best PT in the world, um, that proprioception is always going to be a little bit off. Um, and while we're building it up, it's a way to get them back on the field, um, and make them a little safer so that it maybe gives them a little bit more chance for their body to react, to react and use those muscles to kind of catch it before it turns over again. That was excellent. So we're going to move on a little bit to uh, another, unfortunately, very common injury, 
which is the anterior cruciate ligament tears. So Dr. Tora, kind of the same thing, discuss the mechanisms, prevalence, how often you see ACLs in soccer players, maybe talk about um, surface problems a little bit, and uh, let's, let's talk about um, male versus female, i.e., is there a difference, et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's such a big topic. We could almost have a, an entire hour on ACL alone. So I'll kind of keep it surface level and kind of brief in that respect. Um, but ACL injuries, um, anyone that participates in soccer at, at a higher level is going to have at least one of these on their team. Um, a lot more commonly, if you're a female, especially if you're a high school female, I feel like we see two or three of these from the same team um, once a year. Um, and it's just, it, it's a combination of a lot of things gone bad and it's not necessarily these athletes fault. Um, we know that females are much higher risk for these about some literature says four times as high. There's some literature that says eight times as high as males. Um, but they're just at a higher risk for tearing this ligament compared to their male counterparts. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into why females are at a higher risk. Um, some of this is that high valgus stress, which is um, the, the stress on the knee, which is kind of the knock knee formation, um, or just not even having that at baseline, but a dynamic valgus. So when they're coming down from a jumping position, um, coming down with that knee in that more bent position or adductive position where it's going towards the other knee. Um, there's differences in the hamstring or quadriceps strength. We know that uh the patients that have decreased hamstring strength are more quad dominant landing mechanisms. It's less protective of the ACL. They're at higher risk for damaging that ligament. Anytime there's lateral or posterior hip insufficiencies or hip weakness of this gluteus musculature, that kind of puts them at increased risk for that valgus mechanism, more likely to have an ACL injury, non-dominant leg strength differences between, and, and particularly in females, put them at a higher ACL risk. Um, we know that a lot of these happen uh, with non-contact injuries and they're more non-contact injuries than in their male counterparts. I think it's about 50% or 54% in females while males, it's about a 33% with these non-contact injuries. So even though the player might not go down and it's not been a tackle or anything, that doesn't mean it's not a serious injury. Um, and things that we particularly look for in these athletes are, um, is there an effusion? Is there an effusion within the first 24 hours? Um, those are things that are very concerning in a youth level athletes. The knee should not swell in these people, in these athletes. Um, and if so, there's only a few things that really cause this and all of them are fairly concerning. So this is someone you want to get off the pitch. Um, and as well, any, in, any feelings of instability or looseness in the knee. And sometimes this comes along with the swelling itself. Sometimes these are athletes that were felt to be appropriate, kind of play for the next week. They might've not had a, a large amount of swelling, but they just say, you know, my knee just doesn't feel right. Or they feel kind of a shift in the knee when they're trying to cut. Um, these ACL injuries, um, especially with our running and cutting athletes, it's essential for these for these uh, athletes to do their job and, and to run and cut. And it's, it's really helps hold that tibia in place from translating more anteriorly on the femur bone. That was excellent. You know, I, I think everybody who, who listened to that really needs to take that to heart. Cause that was unbelievably good summation of, of uh, predisposition by women, maybe a little bit of hyperlaxity in some of these women. Um, but, but that's exactly the issue. And I think, the literature is right. I mean, we see, I bet you in our clinic, five to one, we see ACL injuries in football. We see ACLs 
injuries in basketball, but in soccer and women's soccer, women's volleyball, I mean, it's like the common cold. And, you know, we might see two or three in a day. Today we saw three ACL injuries and it's just, it's just almost, you know, kind of like the pandemic. I mean, it's crazy. So Brian, let's talk about the biomechanics. Let's talk about this little mismatch between the hammies and the quads and, and where, where, where does the hip figure in? Where are the hip abductors, the glutes figure in and mid trunk strength figure in, in terms of predisposition for ACL injuries? Yeah. So I'll kind of go over kind of a brief overview of kind of what we deal with in an outpatient setting. Um, but a majority of what we kind of, as we talked about earlier, we'd go down a rabbit hole for hours on this topic, but <laughs> a majority of what we see in our clinic with ACL injuries is typically post-operative, right? Um, and post-operative protocols are pretty standardized by each individual surgeon while giving the therapist some general guidelines in the rehab progression. Um, However, we do see patients who also come into the clinic preoperatively to restore range of motion and improve strength prior to their procedures because research has shown that to be effective as well. Um, however, we do get some unique uh, ACL injuries that are non-surgical that come in. Um, and I'll kind of give you guys an example with a lot of these injuries with specific patients we have in our clinic. Um, we had a pediatric soccer player we recently discharged uh, who was referred or referred to our clinic with a diagnosis of ACL sprain. And he basically jumped up for a header and uh, hyperextended his knee during his landing, swears that he heard an audible pop in his knee, um, had some MRI imaging, uh, was reviewed by multiple orthopedic physicians with some inconclusive results. As we know, MRI can't always be perfect. And uh, he had some hypermobility with his anterior drawer and pivot shift test. Um, and both the physician and I agreed they were pretty symmetrical to his uninvolved leg. And so we decided to move forward with a progressive strengthening program to prevent any further ACL injury. Um, so a typical strengthening program for ACLs in my clinic um, has a large emphasis really on hamstring strengthening. Um, the reason for this is due to the similarity between the ACL and the hamstring, and it's preventing that forward movement of the tibia on the femur. And as Dr. Troyer mentioned, in theory, the stronger our hamstrings are, the less likely or uh, less stress that gets placed on that ACL. Um, in addition to hamstring strengthening, we'll also focus on core and lateral hip stability, uh, which improves the control of the pelvis uh, during sport-specific movement. Um, and sometimes that lateral, you know, hip instability can lead to increased knee valgus when we're running, which can also lead to ACL injuries. Um, and basically, strengthening activities will eventually progress to jumping and landing technique and eventually into sprinting, cutting, and um, pivoting movements. Um, with the patient I was referencing earlier, um, we also, a lot of times, will finish with uh, return to sport testing for ACLs, which is a standardized 10 to 12 uh, jumping, squatting, cutting, and sprinting movements. And in order to return to sport, we want to see that participant score greater than 90% uh, compared to the unaffected leg. Excellent. Um, so, Dr. Troyer, real quick, in terms of you, know, you, you read you read the literature, you read about neuromuscular testing, uh, ACL prevention in women, ACL prevention in, in men, in terms of some of the uh, test fundamental test protocols. Give us your thoughts on that. I mean, is that is that a worthwhile program to try to decrease ACL injuries by doing uh, neuromuscular training, or is that a waste of time? And, and is there a cohort that's maybe uh, better treated by uh, preventative landing drills, et cetera? 
Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a, it's kind of been a hotbed of research for the past maybe 10 years or so. And I'll kind of let Brian chime in on some of this because I know that he, he does a lot of this as well. Um, and I, I really kind of lean on my physical therapist um, for a lot of this stuff as well. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of evidence backing these neuromuscular control programs to kind of um, build some of that to pro- more so prohibit that dynamic valgus motion to look at how an athlete's landing um, to see if they're going into that valgus flexion to see how the, their control is coming down. Um, specifically um, uh, the FIFA 11 plus is a program that's pretty commonly used. Um, and it's kind of astonishing the amount of research that's gone behind that, even at the, the, the college level and especially the pro level. And they've shown with these programs that the more you do this program, your, your level of increase, uh, of your, your the prevention. Yeah. The ACL risk goes significantly down, um, and overall injuries goes significantly down and, um, it benefits to do it with an athletic trainer or, or someone who's certified in this program. Um, and there's still compliance issues <laughs> even after all of this. Um, it takes about 30 minutes to do, which not everyone has time to do um, or incorporate in their practices, especially if you're only practicing about three days a week. Um, but the teams that do this significantly reduce their in- injury. So particularly our females, people that are at higher risk for these, people we may identify as higher risk, whether it's because of structural anatomy or weaker hips, those are people that I typically at the beginning of the season, if that we evaluate them in our pre-screening and say, you know, you may be at higher risk. You've had family members with ACLs. You would probably be someone that benefits from this more than your other teammates. That's excellent. Brian, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, no, I, I'd agree. I think, uh, you know, the old school way of uh, the static stretching approach prior to starting sport is kind of gone by the wayside and we all kind of understand um, a more dynamic warm-up um, really is effective in preventing these injuries. And uh, if we want to kind of go down the rabbit hole of the FIFA 11 pro- plus program, it's a pretty wonderful program in itself. Thank you. So we're going to move on to the dreaded groin injuries. And, and this is something, you know, for sports guys that, that sometimes we just beat our heads against the wall. Um, sports hernias, adductor injuries, hammy injuries hip flexor injuries. So Dr. Troyer, kind of give us your thoughts on, on groin, hammy, adductor injuries, pelvic floor injuries, mechanisms, and, and, and just kind of your experience. And then really what I want to hear is your evaluation. Athlete comes in, you know, then what do you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll kind of start with more, more of the hamstring injuries. So when we're looking at hamstring injuries, um, if you were to look at all the injuries that our soccer athletes um, sustain, it's probably the most common for both soccer, track and field athletes, rugby athletes, anyone that's involved with running, cutting, and sprinting, really. Um, the problem with these hamstring injuries is there's such a high recurrence rate with them, and they can just be really nagging. And that kind of goes along with our groin injuries as well. Um, because up to 30% of these athletes, uh, within the 12 months, first 12 months after their injury can have a recurrence of these injuries. And it almost feels like you almost got back and then it kind of set you back at stage one. And they're frustrating for us. They're frustrating for the athletes. Um, and it's tough because that, that recurrence rate is so high. It's like, are we doing something wrong? Are we returning them back to play too soon with these? Um, and I think the more we learn about these the more these kind of preventative exercise Nordic hamstring programs can help 
um, decrease some of that risk. But ultimately, in, in running and sprinting sports, there's always going to be a high prevalence rate of these hamstring strains. So when we're looking at the hamstring strains or, or muscle tear injuries, um, they're typically with a running or sprinting mechanism. Uh, one that just pops in my mind is um, Josie Altidore for the U.S. men's national team, probably like six or seven years ago, sprinting down the field. And you can always just see him grab the back of that leg. It's like they got shot and they kind of pull up. Um, and all of a sudden you just know that that it's, it, something happened to the hamstring at that point. There's also a stretching mechanism of the hamstrings going out to reach for a ball. Um, and those are more proximal. Those are kind of more in the buttocks area, a little bit higher up. We know that those can typically take a little bit longer to heal from. Um, and this is a, and this is a common injury in, in our higher level athletes. We know that the higher level you get, the more you're playing, the more common these are. Um, and they're a little bit less common in, in our youth athletes because we still have open growth plates. You can have avulsion injuries of those growth plates. Um, but that's something that we evaluate for. Um, we know that having a hamstring injury puts you at a much higher risk for getting one later in the season. Also history of calf strains or ACL, ACL injuries previously will also increase your risk of hamstring strains. And most commonly, it's really that biceps femoris that's involved more than anything else. It's about 80% of the time athletes are pointing kind of right in the back in the middle of the thigh. Um, and if you didn't see it on the field, you, you know, exactly what's coming when, when they were, they're pointing in that region typically. So, so let's go back to something you said, which is really important. You know, I, when I started this a long time ago, we said, well, hamstring injury, probably have you back in three, four weeks, ready to rock and roll. And then as the literature kind of unfolds, we realized that we're probably, you know, by a factor of 10 off. I mean, we're, we're seeing people and we're doing uh, specialized testing, computer graphics, and we're seeing that they're really not even ready at six months if we really are looking at somebody who's back within 5% of their of their balanced uh, contralateral legs. So give us a time frame. A kid comes in, athlete comes in, he's 14 years old or he's 13 years old, he's got a growth plate evolution. What is the time frame versus somebody who's a female who's 17 years old and has uh, a hamstring injury? What, what, because that's the first question is when, you know, when can Melissa go back and play or when can Jimmy go back and play? So, so kind of direct us a little bit in terms of what you would be telling our patients in terms of time frame or what should Brian say? He's going to get asked the same question. Yeah. So, I mean, these things can be very variable. Um, so it, it's tough to prognosticate a lot of these things. Um, and whether you're using MRI to look at these um, to in our higher level athletes, um, to kind of look at the area of injury. Does it involve just the tendon? Does it involve just the muscle? Is it involved the insertion point? These all kind of give us some clues to how long this is going to take. Um, just muscle injuries can, can get back a little bit quicker, but the more it involves that tendon, the more it involves that myotendon is complex where it attaches um, right at that growth plate and in, in younger athletes and at that ischium for our older athletes, we know that it's going to take a longer time because there's constant strain on that area. Um, it can be tough to really prognosticate these, but we know it can be up to three months and even longer in these people. And it really depends on how they progress um, it, with their functional progression with Brian as well. It's This is something that we're constantly walking on every day. We can't really offload this area like we can other things like in a boot or anything like that. So it can be incredibly tough. And we know that the farther up that hamstring um, that it can certainly take three, six months sometimes to kind of get back on the field. And just because you're getting back on the field doesn't mean 
that you're at a, a 0% risk for, for these re- reoccurring. So it becomes this game that we're kind of gauging. Are we ready to go? And is our risk decreased? Is it the championship? And are we going to weigh that risk a little bit more and push it? Or is this something that we got playoffs coming up? There's no point in pushing it now. Um, so it's a moving target a lot of times with these athletes. I think that, that's really good because I think, and I think that's the way to explain it is that we don't really know because parents are disappointed. Well, there's a big tournament coming up or, you know, there's going to be 25 college coaches at this classic and can my athlete play. And I think we have to be very fair and very honest. And you really want your athlete out there at 50% looking terrible. So, so those are all issues. So Brian, chime in a little bit. Let's 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 talk before we jump to groin, adductor, hip flexors, etc. Let's talk about hammies. How do we rehab the hammy, and and where does strengthening come in, and when do you start stretching? And and let's talk about pelvic balance for a minute. Okay. Yeah. So um, groin and hamstring injuries are are super common injury for us to see in the outpatient setting, and something that almost all soccer players do sustain at some point in their career. Um, and with these injuries, I really like utilizing a few specific exercises such as Nordic hamstring curls, uh, Copenhagen adductor exercises, which research has shown to be highly effective in both prevention and treatment of hamstring and adductor injuries in soccer players. Um, and these injuries have, or these exercises have been utilized in recreational and professional programs uh, for a long time now and are, are pretty much a must in my clinic with all my soccer players. Uh, there's a large emphasis also on eccentric strengthening activities, which research has shown over and over again, be highly effective in treatment of tendinopathy and muscle strain injuries. I'm also a, uh, a big manual therapy guy. So I typically like to begin our PT sessions with some form of manual therapy to improve mobility restrictions when it comes to these injuries. This could involve stuff like muscle energy techniques, instrumented assisted soft tissue techniques, such as A-STEM or Graston, um, or even dry needling. Um, and we'll typically follow the, follow that manual therapy with some progressive mobility and strengthening activities uh, to begin to functionally move through that improved range of motion. That was good. I, and I think that's right. I think the hands-on approach really is helpful. Uh, I'm a big fan of dry needling and I'm a big fan of grass stone. And I, and I think that, um, that this whole myofascial release and, and, you know, I think just to say stretch, ice and heat, and do your exercises doesn't really get us anywhere. I think muscle energy really is where it's at. And, and you see the kids get better so much faster. So let's talk about the groin a little bit. I mean, groin injuries in soccer players, again, pretty common, pretty can be very devastating. And, and Dr. Troyer, kind of tell us how, how do you injure your groin? What, what happens to your groin? What happens to your adductor? What happens to your hip flexor? And, and how do we evaluate those kids? Yeah. So, uh, these groin injuries can be incredibly complex and it's, it's not big. It's, it's unlike hamstring injuries with hamstrings. It's, it's, it's four muscles and three of them attached to that ischium. And it's very straightforward. Um, and those are the things that are kind of pulling in that area with groins, you got a whole complex and, and there's a reason why people get frustrated with these. There's a reason why they kind of get thrown off balance, um, very easily. And it's because you have so many structures attaching at one point that attaches to bone that attaches on the other side as well. Um, so it's kind of like this fine tightrope of everything working properly. And if one gets thrown off, you can get imbalance where one thing's pulling more than the other. And, 
um, it makes Brian's job incredibly difficult. <laughs> so, um, so when evaluating these, we're, we're looking at these, they typically come in. Um, it's not always the acute presentation that you'll see with a hamstring with like that pop mechanism. Sometimes it can be acute. They say, yeah, I was shooting. I felt this pop in my groin kind of close to that pubic bone. Um, some other times it's just, you know, I've just been having more trouble with passes with inside of the foot passes. Um, and every time I do it, I just feel this little nag or this little pull and it's gotten progressively worse to the point where every time I run and cut, it's giving me problems. Now, um, the main things that we're evaluating these when we're looking at them is it's, it's a complex system between your abdominus rectus or your abdominal musculature attacking, attaching on the pubic bone itself. Um, coming from the other direction, you have your adductor complex, um, that allows you to pull that leg back in. Um, and then you have kind of the disc in between that, the, the pelvic bone itself, that, that pubic symphysis. And it's kind of this balance between all these muscles among others, like your pectineus and other things that, that balance in this area. Um, and so we evaluate those. We see, is it one that's involved? Is it multiple that's involved? Is it an avulsion of one of those off the complex or is it something like just a strain of those? Um, so, and, and, and Brian, so Dr. Troyer sends his athlete over, give us your assessment. And, and, and just for one second, I want both you guys to talk about sports hernias or pelvic floor injuries, whatever we're going to call them. Um, yeah, so typically, uh, I, one of the things that I'm certified in is called the SFMA. Um, it's a selective functional movement. It's basically a breakdown, kind of a quick screen. You do 10 basic movements, you run an athlete through, and then you kind of break those down into specific movements to kind of look for where these imbalances are taking place, whether it's a mobility restriction, or maybe it's just a motor control issue is the athlete got the mobility in the joint, but maybe they're just having a hard time coordinating that movement. Um, I like to start with my SFMA screens, uh, with a lot of my athletes, uh, it really focused on treatment of that kind of whole kinematic chain. Um, and really kind of going back to the same emphasis on a lot of eccentric strengthening activities with these groin injuries, a lot of use of manual therapy, um, and just a progressive and trying to avoid any kind of symptom provocation, um, while continuing to get that athlete stronger. That's excellent. Dr. Troy, tell us about pelvic floor injuries, sports hernias. How do you evaluate them and how do you separate them from uh, a boring adductor strain? Yeah. So kind of like I said, it, these, these sports hernias can be a combination of the adductor. It can be a combination of the rectus abdominis. Typically it continues to give you problem with sprinting kind of cutting mechanism. And it's right, right in all that area. And the whole thing can be flared up. It can just involve one more than the other. Um, but they can be frustrating. And, and these are always typically kind of delayed presentations because people look at them and they say, I have groin pain and people look and say, Oh, is it, is it some sort of hip impingement or is it some sort of labral injury and, and try injections in this area? And they just don't seem to work. And sometimes you get MRIs and unless you're really looking for the right thing, it can be difficult because these injuries are small. You have to have a specific type of MRI. It's got to have fine cuts because of how it inserts on that bone. Um, and so people will come and say, my MRI is clean and people don't, we, we don't know where we're at with this thing. You end up getting a MRI specifically for this injury and you find out, yeah, you have tears in both the rectus, you have tears in the adductor injury. Um, and it really depends on the grade and what's involved as, as to how we treat these. When it's multiple structures involved, you see a lot of guys at the higher level, um, that are kind of getting that surgical consultation early, 
um, because it's more of a predictable return to play in those athletes and athletes that depend on that, that the playing is their livelihood and that's their occupation. Um, and sometimes at the lower level, we see if we can get by with therapy first, sometimes biologics in this area, um, which there's mixed evidence in that, in that area. Um, but it's, we try to do the more conservative things before I kind of jump into the sur- surgical evaluation for these guys. No, I agree. And I think that's an excellent assessment. And, and as you said, both times, the complex area, um, you know, you're dealing with an adductor strain, you're dealing with a hip flexor, you're dealing with a stress fracture of the pew. I mean, there's so many things. There's, and, and, and I think you're right. I think most of us see it late after they've had sort of the standard, maybe a hip injection or they had an MRI, which showed a labral tear, but that really wasn't their symptoms. They really weren't impinging. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to do a semi-sit-up, and they say, hey, my groin hurts, or I'm pushing off my groin hurts. And uh, boom, like you said, you get the right three tests of MRI, and I'll want to show. So now we're going to move on here to maybe one of the hardest things I deal with. That's patellofemoral pain. Um, and and I, I, I think that it's easy to say, let's send the therapy. And, uh, but I struggle with patellofemoral pain because we, we see it so frequently and it's such a very presentation. So Dr. Troyer, kind of tell us before we get into OS, Osgood Schlatter's, let's talk about patellofemoral pain syndrome and let's talk about it in the context of a soccer player, a little hyperlax, who's maybe a female, she's 16, 17 years old, she comes in, x-rays are normal, MRI is normal, and she says, hey, my knee's killing me and I can't run up and down the field. Yeah, so um, both Osgood slaughters and patellofemoral pain, both very common causes of anterior knee pain that we're going to see in these athletes. Um, patellofemoral pain is more common in females. Osgood slaughters is going to be more common in males and completely different mechanisms, but they kind of present similarly at first. Um, patellofemoral pain being more common in females, they'll typically tell you it's kind of worse with downhill running. Steps and stairs may make it worse. Um, if they're in the gym, they're doing squats, things like that. They'll say, yeah, those typically make it worse. Anything that really loads that knee, um, because we know it's typically more of a functional problem, although it can have a structural component to it. And it's really how that kneecap sits in, sits in that femoral groove and how it tracks down when they're doing these squatting activities. And if it's pulling to one side, it's pulling to the other side, whether it's structural or a functional problem, you can kind of bang off that cartilage um, and, and make the whole ang- the area angry. And it can be tough because it's a diffuse pain. It's not something that's, it hurts right here. It's kind of the whole knee hurts after I do these activities, but it's typically not something that you have to stop the activity. It's something that just lingers on and kind of progressively gets worse with these activities. So people continue to play and you kind of develop this pattern where it gets worse and worse until it's the point when they can't play. And that's when they present to you. Um, when we're looking at these athletes, we're looking at multiple kind of things within the hip and also uh, within the knee, but also the hip. We're looking at the balance of the thigh muscles. Are they more dominant with pulling more towards the outside or the inside. We're getting x-rays on these people looking at that femoral groove. Is it something that's deep? Is it something that's more shallow that predisposes them to kind of moving in those areas? Do they have tight quadriceps or hamstrings or how their patellar mobility is and how that patella moves in the groove? Um, And have they had any change in their sport activity? Because people that have a, a rapid increase in that sport activity greater than 10% a week or something are kind of more at risk for developing these problems. And then also just kind of looking at the overall alignment in in these patients as well. 
So Brian, uh, Dr. Troyer has the prototypical PF pain. Um, give us your evaluation and your treatment. Uh, he makes a good point about the shallow shallowness of the, of the trochlea or the femoral groove. So, so how, how are we going to address that? I mean, what, what, do, what are we going to do for that? A little yeah. bit of hypermobility, a little shallow groove, pains everywhere. Uh, X-rays look pretty good, no meniscal tear, but clearly uh, a chronic situation or a long-term situation that's about to limit their sports activity because so-and-so is ready to quit because their knee's so sore. Yeah, so as Dr. Troyer kind of mentioned, with patellofemoral pain, um, our main issue that we're seeing is kind of an improper tracking of that kneecap during functional movements that's causing pain underneath that kneecap itself. And our primary focus of therapy tends to initially be a large emphasis on lateral hip stability and quadriceps strengthening activities uh, in order to stabilize that patella and avoid that knee valgus uh, collapse at the, at the knee, wooden, um, which is basically when the knee buckles inward during single leg balance activities, uh, such as running or jumping. Um, improving the inward movement of the knee can help to um, allow that kneecap to track on that smooth cartilage that it likes to move on. Um, I'll also utilize things like KT tape um, and occasionally recommend specific patellofemoral knee braces um, to assist with acute exacerbations. Um, but I try to have the athletes not get too dependent on taping and bracing for long-term relief of these things um, and really focus on long-term management of just a lot of strengthening activities moving forward. Excellent. Excellent. So let's talk about OS for just a minute. Uh, Dr. Troy, what is, what is Osgood? Who is Osgood and Schlatter? I mean, what, what is <laughs> so um, if you've had a, a 14, uh, like a, a 10 to 14 year old boy, or you've ever played in sports teams with him, at least one kid has this at one point. <laughs> um, and, and there's a couple of reasons why it's a, it's a common cause of anterior uh, knee pain in, in, in growing kids. Um, particularly we're going to see it around nine to 14 year old boys, typically around one of those rapid growth spurts. Um, and kind of like we talked about early, those growth plates are just, they're always a culprit or a weakness in the system around this time, especially when you're growing rapidly. Um, this is an athletic problem, simply put. Non-athletic people don't really get this problem. Um, only 5% of non-athletes will get it while you'll see it at about 20% of adolescents who are actively participating in athletics. Um, so it's people that are stressing this joint. It's people that are having pull on that growth plate at the tibia. Um, and similar to the problem with sitting larsen Johansson, which is uh, a pull on, on the patellar portion of this, but they're very similar problems. We treat them very similarly. Um, and it's typically not something we have to completely pull from someone from sport. It's typically a chronic problem, something that's gradually come on um, as they've increased their activity. Although you can't have an acute mechanism um, with hyperflexion of the knee and things like that. Um, but it's something that we don't have to typically shut an athlete down. We, we, we start by resting them um, maybe for a short period of time or cutting back the activity, depending on um, what they're doing and seeing if we can manage sending them to Brian, getting him to work on some stretching, some strengthening of other structures, um, possibly a bracing or a chobard strap that may take some of the tension off that area. Um, but these are people that can benefit from early physical therapy to continue to to keep our athletes playing as, as sports physicians. That's what we do is we, we take people that are active and we try to keep them active during this time, but also decreasing that risk of further injury. I think that's really good. Um, the anti-inflammatories have any place you put the kids on anti-inflammatories. 
um, any kind of icing regimen besides PT, how do you mitigate their pain? So-and-so says, Hey, I, you know, I, my son has to play this weekend. He has a big, huge soccer tournament, you get a growth, you get an x-ray, the growth plate's a little bit widened. Um, as you said, you can kind of play through it. How do you mitigate the pain? Yeah. So anti-inflammatories rest, um, sometimes early, uh, a chopard strap in that area or, or some kind of tension on that tent, uh, on the tendon itself, because it, instead of the, the tendon pulling at the bone at that point, it's kind of pulling at the area of where you've put that strap. These are all things that can kind of help mitigate some of the pain, um, allow the athlete to continue to participate um, while you work on addressing the other factors. And the other thing is, these are just things that happen with active kids while they're in growth phase. We know that this is going to end. We just have to get them through this phase, um, whether it's cutting back and doing these activities and stretching and strengthening those muscles, particularly kind of loosening up those quads if they're real tight, um, or even the patellar tendon, if that's really tight, um, just to offload some of that area to allow them to participate. And, and is your thought process the same for Cindy Johansson Larson? I mean, is it is it just kind of the same thing, a little bit of rest, maybe some stretching, decreasing the stress at the inferior pole of the patella? You do anything different? Yeah, so it, very similar from my management uh, on both of those kind of injuries. Um, the ones that worry and 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 keep me up a little bit sometimes it can be can be the acute injury, the kid that does something wasn't having pain before. All of a sudden they go run, they jump, they they almost feel a pop sometimes, um, but it's like they can't walk on it all of a sudden. And that's not someone that I'm saying, Oh, we can just put that in a strap and get you back out there. That's someone I'm getting x-rays on um, occasionally an MRI looking for that kind of dreaded patellar sleeve injury. Um, but that that's usually a little bit older population than your Oscar slaughters, but those are the ones you worry about. It's the acute injury. It's not so much the chronic injury kids that um, you worry about a little bit more and may, may take a little bit more evaluation to tweak those out. No, I think that's a good assessment. The patellar sleeve injury and the avulsion of the tibial tubercle, which then lead to uh, some surgical resolution, certainly is the, the concern. So when you're letting those athletes play, in the back of your mind, you're always worried about, is there going to be some 50-50 ball, something going to happen, and then they're going to come in, they can't straighten their leg actively, and you're like, oh, why did I let them play? So, Brian, let's, let's dial it back just a minute. Let's talk about how we're going to rehab uh, OS, Hodgkin's Slaughters, uh, and Cindy Johansson Larson, and you can you can lump those together. But but what, what what do we need to look for? And then let's talk about tracking, and then let's talk about tight IT bands and tight quadriceps, and 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 trying to mitigate our risk of the dreaded patellar sleeve injury, as Dr. Freud said. Yeah. Um, so with Osgood Slaughters, as we know. Um, a lot of times it can be a self-limiting injury, right? So it means that they tend to typically heal on their own over time with activity modification. However, there are a few things we can do in a physical therapy setting to kind of act expedite that athlete's recovery and safe return to sport. Um, I've uh, found a lot of success with uh, getting treatment with the instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization, like we talked about earlier, along that patellar tendon in the quadriceps itself to improve the quadricep mobility and reduce the stress being placed on that attachment site. Um, and similar to patellofemoral pain, I, I emphasize a lot of lateral hip stabilization exercises and eccentric quadricep strengthening. Um, and then like Dr. Troyer said, activity modification is kind of the name of the game with these athletes. Um, 
with this injury. This is opposed to a complete bed rest or, or immobilization of the leg. Um, usually as these symptoms improve, I'll start to gradually return some sport-specific exercises into their routine and hopefully a, a eventual full return to sport. Uh, and you had, you had made a mention about tight IT bands. Um, and that's something that I get a lot of people, I need to stretch my IT band. Um, and as we know, research has pretty much shown uh, it's very difficult slash impossible to actually stretch an IT band. Um, so really, uh, for me, I always tie things back in. Uh, I drill it into way too many of my athletes head about lateral hip strengthening. Um, strengthen and lengthen rather than try to stretch that IT band. That's excellent. And, and I think that's 200% correct. Uh, and I think a lot of people just say, well, your IT band's tight. You have patellofemoral pain, which is, is kind of missing really pretty much the underlying issue. So uh, I think that's well put. And I think you're right. I think you have to really rock the lateral hip structures, the glutes, the adductors. And really, a lot of it, it, it stems from the trunk. So uh, you got to look at the trunk. Um, we talked a little bit about ACL injuries, male versus female injuries. Um, what, what about, let, let's just for one second, let's talk about pediatric ACL injuries, Dr. Troyer. Kids 11 years old, 12 years old, open growth plate, tears his ACL. Um, what, what do we do? Yeah, so it's incredibly difficult because these are things that we didn't see as much in the past, and that now we're kind of seeing it more often. Um, kids are specializing, as a, specializing in sports at a younger age, which kind of puts them at higher risk for some of these injuries. Um, and it's, it's very similar to a, an adult ACL, but we, but we treat them different surgically. Um, these are still people that, um, there are, these are still, um, athletes that were going to be getting the MRI evaluation to look at that. Um, and I, I would be sending these onto my surgeon to discuss, discuss the options that we have. I mean, the consideration with these younger athletes that their growth plates are still open compared to some of our older athletes, which makes it more difficult. It's, it's not like you can go and um, just put the, uh, put the graft in at a certain angle. You got to have someone who's adept in doing this, who's done it a lot before um, and knows what they're doing with this thing because it, it quite not as not as a non-surgeon, you still know that it's a different beast um, for our, uh, in, in these younger kids. No, I think that's excellent. And I think it's important, um, you know, back in the day, we treated them all conservatively and then they went on and tore the meniscus and it was just on and on and on. And then we, we got into this uh, growth plate sparing ACL reconstruction mode. And, and I think you're hundred percent right. I think it is a different, a different piece. Um, just to pivot a little bit, and I hate to be position specific here. Let's talk about goalies because goalies really, a whole different deal. I mean, everybody was running around up and down the field and, you know, getting into it and slide tackling and doing all these things. The goalie's back there, you know, half the game or maybe more than half the game just standing there bored. But then when, you know, the S hits the fan, it's, it's, it's on and, and the goalie has to really be kind of the last bastion of defense. So let's talk about evaluation of, of, of goalie injuries, uh, and a lot of them are upper extremity injuries, right? It's finger injuries, hand injuries, AC and AC joint injuries, et cetera. So can you give us your thoughts on, 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 uh, on, hang on a minute. Let me ask that again. Can you give us uh, your thoughts on evaluation of, of injuries 
i.e. goalie injuries, upper extremity injuries. And then we're going to have Brian uh, give us his thoughts in terms of also technique, teaching, prophylaxis, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I know Brian said he played as well, and um, I played midfield, and I'm guessing Brian also played somewhere in the field. But we don't see a lot of these goalies in clinic. And simply put, there's only one of them on the field compared to the other 10. Um, but when we look at these injuries, um, looking at back at the Athens 2004 competition and also Euro 2004, they did some studies on the prevalence of these injuries. And it was about 4% of injuries were to keepers compared to outfield players. Um, but a third of these injuries were to the shoulder, about 30%. Um, and typically these injuries were classified as severe in these cases. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why this is, but the same reason keepers make amazing saves, the reason why our shoulders are so mobile also kind of puts them at risk for instability. I mean, it's essentially a golf ball on a tee, which allows us a great range of motion going up on our heads over the back to make these great saves. Um, but inherently we even have to have a labrum that kind of extends some of that capsule so that we can move it in that way. Um, and these things are prone to tearing, um, which leaves us prone to instability, prone to dislocation of this joint more than other joints and something we have to certainly pay, pay attention to. Um, there've been studies looking at upper extremity injuries in all kinds of soccer players and specifically keepers and outside of the shoulder. When we're looking at the forearm, we're looking at the wrist and, and looking at the fingers, the highest thing on our list every single time of these athletes is going to be a fracture. Um, we know in the modern game, keepers are wearing gloves with finger safe technology where they have little finger stays to protect some of this, but we're still having to see, having to see dislocations. Of these areas we're seeing fractures of this area in 98% of these injuries below the level of the shoulder are all acute. And most of them being fractures. Um, goalies at a seven times risk, a uh, seven time increased risk compared to a field player for obvious reasons for sustaining these upper extremity injuries. Um, and when specifically looking at shoulder injuries and these severe injuries, 84% of them are kind of involved that glenoid labrum, um, that extends, um, the ability to, um, increase that range of motion of the shoulder in these athletes. So, Brian, Dr. Turner talked about something really near and dear to every sports guy's heart, and that's glenohumeral instability. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. How, how do you evaluate it? How do you rehab it? Uh, and is most of the instability anterior? Is most of the instability multidirectional? So let's kind of discuss your, your steps in evaluation and then how are we going to stabilize that shoulder with, with, with physical therapy? Yeah, so a lot of the instability I find in my clinic uh, typically comes in an anterior fashion. Um, but really, as he said, I mean, the shoulder in itself is a very unstable joint. Uh, so when we're dealing with injuries with goalies, such as labral tears or whether it's an AC joint separation, a lot of our focus uh, in therapy is going to be on glenohumeral stability exercises, posterior chain activities um, to improve the stability of that joint itself. Um, and what we want to do is even, I mean, as we start to progress, you know, through our strengthening programs, we're getting the athlete back to doing, you know, any exercise strengthening wise or tolerating well, we can actually go and start to practice proper falling and landing techniques, um, to reduce risk of, uh, future injuries to those shoulders. Um, but yeah, I think it's very important to always remember that goalies movements are, are much different than every other player on the field. So incorporating activities that are specific to that position's play or that player's position um, is crucial in their rehab. So 
an example of a, a fun intervention I do with a lot of keepers um, would be like a side shuffling movement with medicine ball tossing in order to prevent wrist and hand injuries. I think that's great. You know, I, I always equate my, my, my water polo players and my goalies, my keepers. I mean, they seem to always have the same kind of injuries. And, and I think you guys are 100% correct in, in, in trying to um, improve the biomechanics of the, of the mid-trunk to kind of get the arm in a better position and space to try to avoid those injuries. And, and really, uh, some, of the, some of the injuries you see from keepers are devastating because, you know, no one really has a, a problem running right into the keeper. That's just, that seems like, you know, that's just guard variety these days. And, 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 you know, they just seem to get destroyed. So you do see some AC joint injuries. You see some shoulder dislocation, uh, bad contusion. So, they are, they are injuries up to themselves, and, and I think the more we can train them to avoid compromised situations, the less injuries we're going to see. So now that we're talking about youth sports a little bit and, and, and maybe a little off topic, let, let's talk about specialization. Let's talk about the kid who's playing on two travel teams, uh, who's playing soccer uh, all year round, who doesn't really get a break. Uh, and, and let's talk about overuse injuries in that in that population, Doctor Troyer. And then we'll, we'll we'll kick that back to Brian and try to get his thoughts on this because this is something that we're all seeing. You know, parents are getting crazier. The kids are playing way, way, way too much. And you know, someone who's a talented kid will get recruited to play for a second team or a third team, and the next thing you know, it's 31 weekends, and then they're doing all kinds of training on top of that. So let's talk about specialization. Let's talk about recovery phases and, and you know, how, how do we fix this? Yeah, so it's it's something that's kind of been brewing for a long time. When I grew up, I, I feel like the earliest age for club and high-level soccer was kind of that U10, U12 age group. Um, and now you're seeing U8, you're seeing U6, you're seeing I mean, it's, it's a higher level earlier. They're training harder. They're training, they're training for longer hours. Um, and they're doing what we call specialization earlier. Um, so youth sports specialization um, has really increased over the past years, which is kind of equated to higher injury risks specifically for these overuse injuries. And I'll kind of go into more of that in a second. But with that being said, youth sports specialization Soccer routinely wakes rates very high in sports with a high rate of specialization. It's the top of the line in boys. It's only behind gymnastics and girls. Um, so these are athletes that are prone to specializing at a younger age. Part of it's a system-wide issue, but it's also just people getting into sports and deciding what they want to do earlier. And they think that that equates to getting to a higher level because they're training harder um, and only doing one thing at a, at a younger age. I spent a lot of time with Nehru Jayanti in Atlanta, who's done a lot of the research in this kind of stuff. And whenever I would see patients with him, he would always ask him kind of three questions. Um, he would ask him, can you, uh, can you pick a main sport? He would ask you, do you train for more than eight months per year for that main sport? And he's like, have you quit other sports to focus on your main sport? And plus or minus, you can also ask them, is this the only sport you've ever played um, as well? So those are the kind of the three questions that he asks everyone. And it helps to rank how specialized a youth athlete is. Um, and one, one of those questions being kind of a low specialized athlete or zero 
two of those being moderately specialized and three being highly specialized, just to kind of easily uh, dumb that down. Um, but when you, when you increase the level of specialization in these athletes, we know that that's an increased risk for overuse injuries. Um, we know that patients who have a higher socioeconomic status are at higher risk for overuse injuries due to the higher risk of specialization in these and these overuse injuries are really occurred due to the su repetitive submaximal loading of these musculoskeletal systems um, when rest isn't adequate in between these uh, in between these times to allow for structural adaptation to take place in these athletes. Um, when we would see these, he's a lot of his research kind of pointed back to he always had ten commandments for for youth athletes, and when when you see these kids. Uh, we're not going to change the course of what they're going to do, but we can certainly mitigate, mitigate some of those risks. We can see athletes that have overuse injuries and decrease their risk going forward. Um, so if you're looking at your youth athlete, you're looking at someone that's had multiple overuse injuries, you look at their training schedule, you ask them how many days a week they're training, how many hours they're training a week. And there's some simple rules that you can kind of decrease that risk, looking at a child's hours per week. So you ask them, you're an eight-year-old, how many hours are you training a week? It should probably be less than their age. Anyone that's over 16 hours a week, no matter what the age, is it, is it also at an increased risk? Typically, we like to have kids one day off per week because that allows the body to recover during that time. Um, more commonly, more free play compared to organized play, kind of at a two-to-one ratio. The more kids are able to play on their own and not in that structured environment, they're at low risk. They, they, they kind of monitor in their own bodies when they get tired, they stop. But that organized sport kind of puts them at a higher risk for specialization and higher risk for overuse. Um, and then also the amount of training that you're doing. Increasing, increasing the amount of your training um, by about 10% a week. It's not going from zero to 100. If you're coming off an injury, you try to jump back into what you were doing before. You kind of need to slowly increase back into that activity to minimize that risk that you're having. And all of this is physicians. It's, it's our kind of a job to, to help educate patients on, on minimizing the risk. But ultimately, athletes are going to toe that line um, for, for injury because they're pushing it. They're trying to get to that next level. And our job is to kind of educate them and how, and how to advise them to move forward with that. That was great. That, that truly was great. And I think that was very concise. And I think everybody treating athletes needs to, needs to really understand that. So, so I really appreciate that. So before I let you guys go, um, I got to ask this question. We had a little discussion last time on concussions and, and, Soccer really is kind of an interesting sport because there's been a lot of research on, on females hitting the ball, concussions, et cetera. And, and I would just like your take as a sports medicine physician on A, concussions, prevalence, evaluation, and, and what's your take on headers, age, should we allow them at all? Should we allow them in adolescence? What, what, how, how do we deal with this? Brian, I'll let you kind of take this one to start. All right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that last podcast with Nancy Burns and Christian, they did a great job on discussing uh, the discussion on concussions, um, which I urge listeners to check out if they haven't, because it really was a, a great review of diagnosis and management from an on-field perspective with uh, an athletic trainer. Um, for me, uh, evaluation and management of concussions in an outpatient setting is very similar to what they discussed, but can be a little different. Um, so as we know, most athletes recover from the acute effects of concussions within days to weeks. 
uh, with proper rest and activity modification. But those that take longer, sometimes months, are the patients we typically see to uh, refer to an outpatient facility. Um, and those are the ones that are typically diagnosed with what's referred to as post-concussive syndrome. Um, and uh, my post-concussive syndrome evaluation typically includes a combination of cognitive, cardiovascular, vestibular balance, um, and cervical range of motion and strength assessments in order to determine an appropriate level of activity and an eventual return to play. Uh, now, one of the best tools I have uh, that I utilize in my clinic to determine the stepwise progression um, for athletes to return to sport is a standardized test specific to concussion diagnoses uh, called the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test. The test is used to investigate the exercise tolerance in athletes with post-concussive syndrome or symptoms lasting more than three weeks, which, like I mentioned, is a majority of the patients I see in an outpatient physical therapy clinic. Uh, the test is a progressive walking test that increases in difficulty each minute um, by increasing the treadmill incline and eventually um, speed when the completion criteria is met. Um, and during each stage, the athletes are asked to report a rating of perceived exertion, which is basically how hard they subjectively report each stages for them. Uh, we also obtain measurements with heart rate um, and ask the patients to report any symptoms such as dizziness or headaches. Uh, completion criteria for the test is usually when they report a high rating of perceived exertion. Um, they report symptom exacerbation, such as headaches or dizziness, um, or we decide they're unable to continue the test safely. Um, now, this test is extremely uh, challenging, even in an asymptomatic individual. Um, but based off the information we get from the test, uh, we can then give an exercise prescription based off 80% of the max heart rate they're able to reach on the treadmill test without symptom exacerbation. Uh, so we can start to train the athlete at this heart rate for 20 minutes a day uh, in order to avoid deconditioning uh, and facilitate recovery. Um, and the results of this test, along with other information gathered during their evaluation, um, allows us to determine a safe and effective treatment program that gradually transitions the athletes back into full participation in, in soccer activities. Yeah I, think that's a, yeah, I think that's a great point, Brian. Um, and it's something that the more and more researchers come out on concussions, um, people used to treat it like cocoon therapy. It's like, go to your room, turn off all the lights, take away the cell phone. And the more we look at these things, uh, the more we've kind of transitioned away from that. We have a acute period of where we take it a little bit easier. Um, but I'm telling a lot of my patients that getting the, getting the blood pumping a little bit um, sub threshold to where it's not recreating their symptoms or not making them worse, um, is something that's shown to be beneficial. There's a paper out, I think last month where again, this showed a lot of benefit. Um, so getting people on a stationary bike or getting them on a treadmill, not typically running because the bouncing activity can kind of aggravate, especially the people with the, the more balance issues and kind of the, the dizziness issues. But I think sending them to a physical therapist who's, who's trained in the Buffalo protocol is a great way to, um, to protocol this out. It gives you some more control. Um, maybe you're more overzealous athletes that you think might overdo it and might kind of push that boundary. It's a way to do this systematically um, and, and help them get back or at a back at a faster pace um, than we typically do, especially your athletes that are trying to get back on the field um, as soon as possible. No, I think that's great. I think it gives you a lot of parameters and it, and it kind of gives you guidance in, in your return as the saying, you know, are you back? You had a neuropsych test, you're back to baseline, but, but it really recreates sort of what you need to do 
uh, physiologically. And I think that that has always helped us a great deal. So I'm going to ask both you guys what we forgot, what we should have talked about that we didn't. Uh, and I'll start with you, Brian, and then Dr. Troyer, kind of to uh, uh, be, the, be the reliever here. What do we forget? Oh, what do we for uh, concussions? What did we talk about that we should have talked about? And and relate to the concussions or the uh, in, in um, anything in soccer, soccer rehab, soccer injuries. What do we forget? Oh, um, so uh, I think uh, one of the overall key strategies for me, um, as far as rehabilitating soccer players, is. Uh, really just an individualized approach um, that addresses the specific position and also a team treat mentality that kind of brings together not just the players, but the medical staff and the coaches and parents as well. Um, the general focus of therapy should always be on avoiding deconditioning and muscle atrophy as much as possible, um, while also allowing the injured area to adequately heal. And I mean, ultimately, everything for me always falls back to communication as I kind of talked about with the athlete with the inversion ankle sprain, um, without good communication between all parties involved, we may see an athlete return to sport too quickly, uh, causing them an increased likelihood of re-injury or the exact opposite. We could see them sit out for too long, become deconditioned, which could ultimately result in an increased likelihood of injury as well. Yeah, I think you, you put it really well, Brian. And um, it, soccer really is a team sport, especially from the medical standpoint. Um, kind of head up with a team physician, your athletic trainer that's in the training room with you every day, your physical therapist who is helping you rehab back from injury, um, everyone involved, the coach, parents as well, um, to kind of discuss the goals and, and what the level you want to reach and how we can get you there. Um, and it kind of starts from the, the minute you're evaluated in preseason, it's, uh, you're making sure the athlete's safe beforehand. You're evaluated from a cardiovascular standpoint, make sure there's no other health issues you have to worry about, um, realizing any deficits they may have. If you evaluate and you find some valgus motion or they're having a little bit of knee pain, trying to address it with physical therapy to get them on a, on a program before the season to address some of those weaknesses, to, to decrease their injury risk during the season. There's been a lot of good studies out there, especially at the highest level, that show that teams with decreased injury rates do better in the standings. And if there's no better way to uh, push that on coaches to get people into an injury prevention program or an athlete into an injury prevention program, I don't know what to do. Um, so these are things we try to identify from the minute we meet the athlete and even when we see them back for evaluation. So if they're coming to clinic um, for an ankle injury, and you're seeing also other biomechanical deficits you can address, adding this into their rehab program, talking to their athletic trainer, talking to their uh, PT and coach, and seeing how we can get them back on the field and keep them healthy when they're there. That was excellent. You guys you guys were both just awesome, and, and, and I want to thank you both. I mean, very informative, very uh, helpful in terms of both parents and coaches and physical therapists and doctors. So um, kudos. This was really great. And, and I think – Really, people should go back and listen to these two soccer podcasts because soccer is growing, uh, becoming extremely popular. As you said, kids are starting younger and younger and younger, which I'm not really a fan of. But I also think that's the trend. And I think the healthier we keep these kids so they can get into the higher levels, high school, college, etc., uh, the better everybody is, better off everyone's going to be. So, again, I think preventative medicine goes a long way. And, and, and in soccer, I think that's specifically true. So again, 
you guys. Thank you very much. Scott, yeah. I'm going to kick it back to you, and Please. maybe you could ask them how we could get a hold of Dr. Troyer and uh, Ryan. I, I just have one question. As a survivor of Osgood Slaughter, <laughs> there's hope at the other end. Outside of the fact that apparently every trailer hitch is at that level. And to this day, because I'm over 25, to this day, I avoid trailer hitches because of that doggone Osgood Slaughter. And I felt <laughs> like I ran into every one. It hurts. It hurts like a son of a gun. All right. How do we get a hold of you, Dr. Troyer? So yeah, you can you can reach out to me through my uh, my email address. It's just Troyer Wesley T R O Y E R dot W E S L E Y at Mayo Edu, um, and that's probably the best way to reach me. Um, if you have any questions or um, any concerns, or just want to talk about anything like that, well, that's good. How about you there, uh, Brian? Yeah, as always, you can get in touch with me or my clinic. Uh, by going to corephysicaltherapy.com or emailing me at brobertson at corahelp.com. All right. I just have to uh, parrot uh, Dr. Rick. You guys were wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, as a dad of a daughter that played soccer, you know, you're just constantly dealing with something. They play hard out there. They they don't hold back. And you, you just got to have some solutions out there that help with the the pains and all of that good stuff. All right. Also, uh, one last comment. Go out to corephysicaltherapy.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, that is a great place to go. If you have, I mean, just type it in. Find out. And they're there to help you. You will not be disappointed. All right, gents. Absolutely. Once again, very, very, very good, very informative. Thank you very much for joining In Your Corner. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys.